Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post. Next up, we have legendary curator, documentarian, and New York City icon, Fab Five Freddy. Coming up, I talked to Fab Five Freddy about working alongside some of the biggest names in hip-hop, chopping it up with Andy Warhol and his new cannabis line. Up next, Fab Five Freddy. Let's go. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. You know the rules. Download the podcast. Leave a five-star rating. Who was your favorite guest? Who would you like to see on the show? What Gone in 60 Seconds was your favorite? What theme? What subject inspired you the most? Tell a friend to tell a friend. Renaissance Man. New episodes release every Thursday. This week's theme is the essence of cool. Cool is not something that is easily defined. There are no set rules to being cool. But you know 100% when you see it. The essence of cool is something that has existed for centuries. And if I had to pinpoint a few of the things that all fly guys in history have in common, it would be this. Rule number one, you got to be unique. An important factor of cool is being unforgettable. An original is always worth more than a copy. Wear something that stands out and be so kind that you leave a lasting impression on people. Rule number two, don't force it. Relationships, style choices, nothing. You know when something is or is not meant for you. Having that je ne sais quoi is about not forcing pieces together that just don't fit. Which leads to my final point. To truly be cool, you cannot doubt yourself. Not even for one second. And to be honest, why would you? God made you perfect exactly the way you are and left some room for you actually to grow and get better. So when you walk into a room, no matter who's in it, know that you belong there just as much as anyone else. The essence of cool is all about being 100% authentic and unapologetically you in any situation. Come as you are, not as you think you should be. My next guest knows all about that. Fab Five Freddy is the essence of cool. He's the bridge between uptown and downtown, hip hop and punk. And he's the curator of some of the biggest moments in American pop culture. Coming up, I talked to Fab Five Freddy about kicking it with Basquiat, hosting your TV raps, and being a first-hand witness to the rise of hip-hop. Up next, Fab Five Freddy. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose. And welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, 
and everything in between. My next guest is an icon, a curator, a documentarian of important moments in American pop culture history. Fab Five Fred has befriended and influenced some of the most influential artists of our time, including but not limited to Madonna, Basquiat, Debbie Harry, and more. He has also taken us as viewers for a ride along through the rise of hip-hop while hosting Yo! MTV Raps and directing many classic music videos. It is my honor to welcome a legend to the show, Fab Five Freddy. Welcome to the Renaissance Man. Oh, man. Thanks so much for being, for having me as your guest today, Jalen. Longtime fan of your incredible game and also the incredible interviewing work you be doing on ESPN. I'll be watching you in the mornings, my Thank brother. You, family. I appreciate the love. And as I mentioned, you're known not only for being an artist, but a prominent figure in American contemporary art. Where did you discover your love for art and who were some of your biggest influences? Yeah, well, my art making begins with me as a young teen doing, I was a vandal. I was a graffiti artist in the streets in New York. And that was something that started way back in the 70s. But at some point in the midst of doing that, I looked at pop artists and what Andy Warhol and Roy Lichtenstein. I'm like, wait a minute, these guys is doing similar stuff inspired by the same stuff we were. So that led me to be like, wait, I want to be an artist now. I just don't want to be tagging my name up. And that began a journey for me that led me to become a visual artist, meet other people like Jean-Michel Basquiat that were trying to do the same thing back then in the 80s. But then I also was very interested in this new thing in the Bronx called hip hop, which was like an infant trying to find its way. And I thought we should all connect this stuff together. It would make all the cultures look bigger that we got a visual art, we got a music, we got a form of dancing. Let's get it on. Absolutely. And by the way, what you're saying is important to the evolution of hip hop because so many times people look at it as rapping into a microphone and you just acknowledged it. It's graffiti, it's DJing, it's dancing, it's the music, it's how we speak. So for you, how important it, was it for you to make sure that those two worlds collided? Well, you know, I just thought it would be, a, when I was a young, t a teenager trying to figure out a way in, I thought I was looking at a lot of what was going on in the punk rock and new wave scene. And they seemed like they was doing some wild, crazy stuff. But I thought some of that stuff was so wild and crazy. I thought, man, if I can get to talk to some of those people and explain how I think the energy is similar, although the music was different, the energy to make it happen by any means necessary. And then I began to meet people like Blondie, Chris Stein and Debbie Harry, and they believed and listened, and they became the first real patrons of my work, as well as Jean-Michel, and that kind of how we got eased in through music people that were open to these new ideas, and they embraced it all, and then I got involved in making what became hip-hop's first film, Wild Style, mm. which showed how these things all connected in the hood, in the Bronx. And that kind of laid a foundation that I've continued to build on and a platform for many other people as well. Absolutely. And you've changed not only so many people's lives, 
But now that hip hop has become something for mainstream, a lot of people don't realize the origins of it. And I remember Blondie dropped the song about Flash, Grandmaster Flash. Yeah, it was and trying to figure yeah. out how did she get connected with him? And then me doing some research, it was like, wait a minute, Fab Five Freddy told them they need to take rap music uptown. So can you talk about that process? Right. So what it was, was I did connect with them. They were the biggest like new wave punk rock group at that time. And um, her boy, they were a couple, Kristine and Debbie Harry were the nucleus of the group. And I'd explain what was happening, how the energy was similar. They were listening to me. And so in the rap, when she was like, the first thing she says is Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. DJ uh -huh. spinning, Flash is fast. These were things I would be telling her. Well, Grandmaster Flash is the fastest. We call ourselves Fly Guys and Fly Girls. She was like, oh. And then she put it all, all together in this goofy rap. And the funny story about when I first heard the record, I always thought they did this record as a goof in the studio just for me. I never thought they intended to release it. Um, about a month after hearing it, I was on. I was at one of my first art shows in Europe. It was in Italy, and then I traveled to Paris for the first time. I'm in France, and I heard the record in a taxi cab. I said, wait, how does this cab driver get a copy of Blondie's record that was a song they made just for me? Mm -hmm. I then learned this single was dropped as a single, and then it went on to be a number one song. And it, I still can't believe that all happened, believe it or not. So songs like Rapper's Delight and the Sugar Hill Gang and the message with Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel were my introductions to hip hop yeah. and rap music on wax. And now you've taken it uptown and you now have a disco artist, one of the biggest artists in the world, Blondie, yeah. acknowledging hip hop. So for you, what was it like to be the curator of that period of time? Because hip hop now has clearly become something that is forever. It's incredible. It's the most dominant music on the planet based on all the streaming services. You know, really, it was just, it was amazing at that time to be making these connections, but very few people knew who I was at that time. I was determined to play the background, trying to direct, make my visual art, trying to have my hands in some other things. But it all became a much bigger story Later in the 80s, when MTV asked me to host the first nationally broadcast hip-hop show, Yo! MTV Raps. Mm -hmm. So then people were like, wait a minute, that's the name that Blondie mentioned on Rapture. <laughs> oh, because nobody <laughs> knew what a Fab Five Freddy <laughs> yeah. was unless you was really on the downtown scene. I was just this thing that she said. So that began to connect the dots. People were like, how did you know them? And I was like, that's how I was moving. I was finding allies and supporters in places where you wouldn't think. And and the same thing for Jean-Michel Basquiat. That's how we got tight, was when we began to connect with those people that embraced us. Me and him became homies. We was both the same age out of Brooklyn. We both knew a lot about all these other painters. So mm -hmm. we was both figuring out, like, this is a good lane where people are showing us some love and spending a few hundred dollars on them first paintings. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also, like, as a native Detroiter, we don't have a subway system. Um, so it always fascinated me how New Yorkers in particular not only took the subway trains and tagged them, but they look amazing. 
they, they, they look amazing. So like for you, how did you get into doing graffiti and just talk about how that art transcends in a lot of ways, the art that we may see on people's walls. Give me one quick second. I'm going to show you something. Okay, cool. Love this. You're getting exclusive right now, baby. Renaissance man. Yes, and I'm home in Harlem. So now the guy that started graffiti as we know it in New York is a Greek kid. He had a job as a messenger. He lived not far from where I'm at in Harlem in another area further up called Washington Heights. His name was Taki183. And in the early, I think late 60s, early 70s, when he went on jobs all over Manhattan as a messenger delivering packages, he, with a magic marker, he would tag his name, T-A-K-I-183. I recently was gifted an original by him. Crazy. This kid, like, wow. this is like as if I met, like, a Michael Jackson type figure. He's mm. so, so much of a pioneer. And this kid went around the city back then, late 60s, early 70s, put his name everywhere. And that inspired other kids. That was the street number, 183rd Street. Other guys might be Joe 182 from 182nd. And that's how it began. So in the beginning, it was just little tags, just writing your little name everywhere. Then the competition to have your name more and more. Okay, I want my name bigger. I want my name in two colors, three colors. I'm going to figure out how to put a 3D drop shadow on my name. All of those were the development phases of graffiti into an art form, still on the streets, but it became this incredible thing. Like, I did more than you. I got more colors. No, I did mine bigger. No, I did the whole car. No, I did four or five cars. That's what drove graffiti to become this thing. It was like a competition to kind of get be the NBA champ type of sort of thing like that. What are some of the biggest threats you faced as a graffiti artist? Well, the biggest threat was getting chased, getting caught. And then the sentence back in the days when graffiti was a big thing was you would get sentenced to washing walls. So mm. you on a weekend, you'd have to go to a, a station that had been tagged up and they would give you these gloves and a solution and you'd have to be washing walls. But um, thank God I never got caught, never got busted, um, was able to. That was a part of being nice is not getting caught. Mm -hmm. So that didn't happen. But that was all, you know, we were all teenagers in the beginning and it was just teenage mischief. But later on, it's like, I led the charge to, for others that also wanted to figure out how could I be looked at as an artist? Mm -hmm. How could I put this on an object, a canvas, or whatever, and, and like make a few dollars? And that was a process that we then had to learn how to adapt to the art world and just, you know, being in business, you know? And then you took it from the subways to television, because as you mentioned, you were the first hip hop video VJ of yeah. Yo MTV Raps. That's right. What a classic show. And it was a precursor to shows like the Video Box and Rap City. And so many legendary groups got a chance to come on Tribe Called Quest, Nas, Tupac. The list goes on and on. And it was also for me, as I saw Anthony Bourdain have a show, it was like a travel show too for me because you were always on the road. You were at video shoots, parties, yeah. premieres. So what are some of your special memories from doing your MTV rap? Oh, man, There's so many special memories. Particularly, I like to point out 
at the time when I got asked to come on and do that show, MTV didn't have shows that went out in the street and went to, to where the music was. Everything was in an MTV studio with a crazy background and the VJs would be on for hours playing all them rock and roll videos. I was like, you know, I don't want to be seen like that. I'd be more comfortable if a cat is on the corner in Harlem or he's in his basement up in Mount Vernon where I went to interview Pete Rock and CL Smooth or I want to go to Compton. Let's be at the Welcome to Compton sign with NWA and let's drive a truck so the audience can see what South Central L.A. looks like. Most people had never, never knew. So that was the inspiration. MTV said, let's film him wherever he wants to go. And then I got to travel. And so the, for me, being a New York head that was in, around watching the beginnings of this, I now got to go to Compton and talk to Dre, Ice Cube, Easy e about what they're doing, what their hood is like. I got to go to Miami with Luke in the beginning when it was Luke Skywalker and the two live crew. Yes. I got to go there and go, because I'm into lyrics and, and, and flows. And what Luke and them was doing was not that. But when I saw the fun in the room and everybody singing along, I said, oh, I got it. This is just a good time. This is a different energy than what new, new, like up in New York that time, it was like a B-boy pose. And, That's a and, and mug B-boy stance. And the B-boy stance, baby. It was like you had to have that stance down. But then Luke and them showed us how to party in a different way. So those were special highlights for me meeting new artists, seeing where they're coming from, getting an understanding of what they hood looks like. And that was special. Going to the Fifth Ward when the Ghetto Boys had your mom playing tricks on me. And we got to show you, here's the Fifth Ward, like what they rapping about. And that was special for me. Like we, I'm learning and sharing it with the audience. So that was, that was incredible. Great and moment. that was definitely a game-changing thing for hip-hop itself because – you guys bringing it to MV, uh, MTV helped allow it to grow and make it mainstream. And so it, 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 it reminds me that over the last few decades, there's been like a cultural shift towards, towards social interaction. Hmm. And what I mean by that is there are people who now will live tweet an album release or throw virtual art galleries. Yes. What impact do you think that has on music scenes, and do you think it is still possible for new subcultures to develop like punk and hip-hop did in the late 70s? That's a great question, Jalen. And um, luckily for me, I've been a tech nerd, but on the cool side of nerds forever. I've been always up on the new tech, new gear since I was a kid. So I had a computer online, or early on, even early mid 90s, early 90s on MTV raps, I was on AOL and finding people that was into hip hop. I think it's an incredible new world we're living in. Web3 is the thing you need to understand because by using crypto, we're going to be able to take more control, get more of the benefits of what we make creatively. You just have to lean in and learn a little bit about what a non-fungible token really is an nft and how that works one of the ways i'm sure you're aware is they've added more value to the idea of a trading card which the one i can't figure the name now the company that's doing nba trading cards but you get a digital trading card with a highlight from your 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 favorite ball player 
and maybe some other cool stuff attached to that digital technology. When we figure that out, which is beginning to happen, there's a company now that Nas is invested in. I think it's called Royal, where you can invest in the royalties. You can buy a token of the artist royalties. And if that song takes off, the value of this token goes up in value. This is a whole new thing now where you can participate in a unique way. So it's important that we get an understanding, um, understand how it works. And so the new movements and new artists, when they get more control, they'll be able to reap more of the benefits than the few fractions of a penny they get on the Spotify, et cetera. Now it's hard to get some money in them spaces. Absolutely. And now with labels want to give artists 360 degree deals and stuff like that, it gives them a chance to branch off. What do you, how, like as the, the, the business of music has changed. Yeah. You've seen like the, the art form go from a DJ being the dominant person, so to speak, in the group to allowing the MC to rhyme. Yes. Now record labels basically making it non-tangible for people to be in groups because you can't make the kind of money because they want to do 360 deals. Yeah. So what do you think about how the music industry has changed from its beginnings of Run DMC and LL in the 80s to the top artists we see nowadays? You know, it has been a 100% 360 change in the way this all works right now. So it's an amazing time, actually. Vinyl's been around all of our lives. A record, flip it over, play it. That's over now. Those are antique relics. Mm. So are CDs and cassette tapes now. I'm like, what's a cassette? Somebody right. under 25 may not really right. understand what a cassette, a CD, a DVD is. Mm. So that's important. But what's once again, like I said before, it's important to understand how these new things work and if you get your hands around it, you then can really participate and reap the bulk of the benefits. Like similar to what Chinese, what Kanye West just did with that little digital player of his own device where you now get that player. These things are going to increasingly happen. So it's a good time if you're up on whatever. That label model from before, that was the most corrupt deal going, the way the record companies would give you money to make a record, but you owed them for the rest of your life. They own the master. Mm. Artists have now understood. It's like if you get a loan to buy your house, 20 to 30 years, you pay off the mortgage, you should own it free and clear, not in the record business. So that very um, um, inequitable business is crumbling because digital has coming with new ways to get your paper right but you got to lean in to figure out how this stuff works is what I see. Well said. And I've always clearly been inspired by sports, but also by multimedia and people who look like me that I felt like were cool. Right. And when I was young, Don Cornelius gave me that. Wow. I was like, yes. wait a minute. He well-dressed. He interviewing people. Yeah. You never let him get it wrong, get the board, because he don't want to make us look bad. I know, it, right? You did the exact same thing with your MTV raps mm. and how you were always fly, well-spoken. You were mature about your game, but you were hip and you, you weren't weak with it. So like for you, what has it been like as you evolved as being somebody that the culture understands as a curator mm. and the embodiment of style and cool? It's been a blessing, you know. It's really been a blessing, Jalen. I grew up, I like to talk about the, the really great 
wise black men I grew up around. My dad and his friends were super hip, super cool. They also were super intelligent in terms of what was going on around the world. And I'm constantly amazed at how much of that really rubbed off on me and motivated me to make the kind of moves I made. Because I also heard their frustrations as black men from another era, a lot of things they couldn't do. They're just as smart as we both are, but they couldn't make those moves to control and own the means of producing their stuff. So that was a motivation in me that I'm going to figure out a way to make my shit happen, and, and I'm going to leave that door open to bring some of the homies in. And big shout to Brooklyn, because as Jay-Z grew as an artist, his lyrics started to change. And mm. when he started to talk about art and Basquiat and stuff like that, many people got familiar then. True. And man. as you acknowledged, like, this is a day one relationship for you. So can you tell me one of your favorite Basquiat stories? Wow. Let me see. Okay. This is an interesting snapshot. First of all, I like to tell people, me and Jean joked around and laughed a lot. We was typical kid dudes, young dudes, chasing chicks, uh -huh. trying to get in the clubs for free. Because in the beginning, when the downtown clubs, we didn't have any money. So we was like, yo, let us in. So we were having fun, escapades. But then when Jean started getting paid, started selling some work, one night we were hanging out at a club downtown on the, in the Lower East Side. And there was a, a dude that was came, a brother came in there, was panhandling. And he was trying to do some money. And he was doing something weird where he took a sneaker like he had it on his head. Like it wasn't too hard to balance it. But he was trying to get the white folks to give him some money. He's like, look, look, y'all. Look. And we, me and Jean looked like, yo, this dude ain't doing nothing special. So he was, people was giving him a dollar, a little 50 cent. Jean-Michel took a fresh $100 bill and gave that to him and just put it in his pocket. Now, the dude didn't realize at the time, but me and Jean had such a great laugh imagining what this brother's going to do later when he realizes what somebody put in his pocket. Got $100. A $100 <laughs> bill. So Jean had a great, we had great sensibility, laugh a lot, a, a really fun, cool dude that just, it all worked. It blew up. Sorry, he checked out at 27, which is like mm -hmm. unbelievable, but... He made a hell of a lot of work, and the work still tells the story, and he's one of the most important contemporary artists that ever did it. So, Absolutely. Especially. And lastly, and I appreciate you taking the time before I let you get out of here, I have to talk about your hard work in the cannabis industry. Man. New yes. York City just legalized it. Yes. And 18 states have for recreational use, and you've done a lot of work to help African Americans and other minority groups have equity in the industry and expose the disparity in the justice system for black and brown people convicted of cannabis possession and distribution. What does cannabis equity look like to you and how far away do you think America is from achieving it? Well, Biden and Kamala ran on decriminalizing, legalizing, expunging records of the tens of thousands of disproportionately people of color that have been victimized and criminalized by this plant that has killed no one. This is the product that I developed. Um, it's called Be Noble. It's named after brother Bernard Noble from Louisiana that was given a 13-year sentence for mm. two joints worth of cannabis. We mm. literally put a two-joint pre-roll on the market mm. in 
10 states right now. And I was blessed to partner with the biggest cannabis company in the business, Curaleaf, which the messaging is on the package about his situation. If you hit the QR code, it'll take you right to our website. So the, so the, so the, the, the mission is to raise awareness about cannabis injustice, a plant that has killed no one, that has medicine, medicinal value, that has been given a negative, um, just draconian nightmare story when it's a beneficial plant. So we are happy to be involved. We're in 10 states right now selling um, many more states to come. We're coming to California with a whole new line of pre-rolls. So it's been a blessing to be able to message about the BS that too many of us have to deal with, with a plant that has great health benefits. And that's what's led this charge. Medical has kicked the doors open where they go, wait, we've had medical cannabis. Nobody's bugging out. We don't have a, a opioid problem as a result of cannabis use. We have people getting more help. And I'm learning now, once again, that all cannabis users have been medicating without us really understanding the effects but as science and as we open this plan up and we can do more research, we'll learn more. There's 80 different cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. We've only been able to isolate about four, in, um, THC, CBD, and a couple of others. There's a lot more beneficial uh, medicine in cannabis that hopefully when we get a more open um legislation, we can then examine it better and more people can get the benefits. And in New York, we've got the most progressive cannabis legislation in the country where those most victimized people of color primarily are going to get a 50% shot at the licenses wow. in New York. And people that fought to get this legislation passed, one of the young women was the main lobbyist, Cassandra Frederick, was featured in my film Grass is Greener on Netflix, by the way. If you guys didn't see it, I made a film on the history of cannabis, its connection to music, but also I looked at the criminal justice nightmare. That's Grass is Greener on Netflix. And this Be Noble product, which I'm super proud of, is now on sale in 10 states. Um, and that's what I've been doing with this cannabis thing. And uh, yeah. And, and I've seen Grass is Greener. And oh, wow. it's incredible. And, and by the way, I love how not only you acknowledged how we were criminalized for marijuana, but how we as black people were criminalized in film and how we were depicted. So for you, like how is important, how important for you is it to tell those stories as inspiration, but also to be a change agent? Well, you know, once again, where I come from, growing up around the intelligent men I was blessed to be around, they were handcuffed in terms of being able to tell their stories the way they wanted to. A lot of my motivating inspiration came from that, to get on your MTV raps and, and like be fly and be cool, but I could put a sentence together and I could articulate and tell our stories and I was blessed to be able to do that. And the same thing with cannabis. I knew right away, wait, I've got a clever way to tell us because growing up in a jazz household, I knew that they had made records about cannabis. Louis Armstrong, Fats Waller, Cab Calloway made songs about cannabis in the 1920s and 30s. And it was bringing white folks to come and hear this music. And hey, pass me that joint over here. This is nice. The racist did not want to see that happen, and that motivated them to criminalize cannabis. It is only racism. 
at aimed at Mexican folks and black folks to criminalize cannabis in 1937. And then they just focused on creatives and cool people and musicians all the way up until now. But the walls are coming down. But in the southern states, they're criminalizing people using mandatory minimum sentences like Bernard Noble was mm-hmm. given a 13-year prison sentence for two joints worth of cannabis. Oh, so the I'm fact that that goes on was like, wait a minute. I can't believe that. I got to have a way to tell people. So also what we're doing with the brand is 10% of what we make in all these states, we're donating to organizations helping expunge records, organizations mm-hmm. helping teach people how to learn to, to get a job in the cannabis business. Mm-hmm. So we're doing things like that with the money. So it's cause-based. 10% is going. So the more money we make, the more we'll have to give to orgs helping. In New York, by the way, I know time's running low, but Medgar Evers Community College, a college that I went to for about two semesters, then I left and became, got on my Fab Five Freddy biz. But they're going to be one of their first institution teaching courses on how to cultivate, on how to run a dispensary mm-hmm. um, so that you can go to school and learn how to get a decent job in what's going to be a multi-billion dollar business right here in the state of New York alone. Well, like everything you've done since day one, it's been necessary. It's been with intellect. It's been with style. It's been with flavor. And I want to thank you, my brother, for being a historian, for being a curator of the culture, somebody that continues to make us proud. But before I let you get out of here, Fab Five, I have a rapid fire segment called Gone in 60 Seconds. You ready to do this? Bring it on, baby. (laughs) Let's get it. Name one of your favorite painters or mixed media artists at the moment. Well, you know, I can't leave out. You know, I'm a big, you know, Andy Warhol was a huge inspiration on me when I was a kid. So I like Andy Warhol, his paintings, but also how he was a multimedia artist. That inspired me to work in different mediums. Like, it's all good. You just don't have to paint. I can make film. I can write an article. I can publish. So Andy was good at that. But then I was an art nerd. So I was into, like, people from... 15th and 16th century, like an artist, Italian painter by the name of Caravaggio, who actually was a bad boy. If you read about him, he kept dudes that carried a sword. That wasn't a normal thing. And as I mentioned, I never caught you without a fly brim, and you know for iconic hats. Who is your favorite hat maker? Ah, good question. There's a cool brother in Harlem. The hat store is called Flame Keepers Hat Club. Flame Keepers Hat Club. He got dope hats, fly colors. He comes with cool ass bands and accessories for the hat. Got an Instagram page and all that. That's my man right here in Harlem. Flame Keepers, baby. Well, Flame Keepers, you got a new client in Jalen Rose. Not only I'm about to be following you on Instagram, but I'm about to come see you right when these NBA playoffs start because I know the Nets are going to be in them. Ah, that's what's up, Jamie. You know what time it is. And holla at me when you come to town so that me and you can get together and continue these conversations. Done and done. A couple more days. No, we definitely will. Name one tool all artists across all mediums must have. One tool? Yes, one tool all artists across all mediums must have. You know, I would have to say it's this thing that we're using to communicate right now. It's the internet. Because every artist 
that I've ever been curious about. They got a website, web page. I can see the work. And also the interviews that they did on YouTube. Like I can look at artists. These are things that were maybe only meant to be shown at a museum somewhere. They never was on TV. They're on YouTube. So there's so many artists that I've been curious about. I can see them, hear, see them talk. And, and then see their work and look at other artists' work. Everybody's like, get online. Like almost every, even graffiti artists doing murals now will put their Instagram thing is how they sign the work. So when you really want to know, you go in and go to the Instagram and then you, 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 you see all the dudes work. So it's a, it's a must-have tool, which we all have. Whether you do it on the iPhone yeah. or on the computer. And we've come a long way from beepers for sure. Name for one sure, musician sure. you think more people should know about. One musician you think more people should know about. Sure. And this goes back to my jazz upbringing, if you will, just being around jazz. My favorite musician from a kid is a jazz pianist by the name of Thelonious Monk, mm. who... It's just brilliant. It, the music at once sounds simple. There's some dissonance. It's cool. And at this and it's very complex in a very simplified way. So it just hit me as a kid. I remain curious and infatuated with the music of Thelonious Monk. And before I let you get out of here, yeah. One piece of advice you will give all creatives piece of advice you would give those that consider themselves creatives. Wow. That advice is, and it's a must, to not just get it popping, but to continually keep it popping. You must be diligent. You must be obsessed. You must be driven. You must take no for an answer. And you must come back for more, 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 and more. And keep getting at it. That's the only way it gets done. It's been an honor to interview an icon. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you for joining the show, my brother. Oh man, it's been a pleasure, man. I've been waiting for this moment, my man Taylor Rose on the Fab Five. We are together, baby. No doubt. Last call. Last call. I like to thank Fab Five Freddie for stopping by the podcast. One thing that I found really interesting about our conversation is hearing him talking about the making of the classic song, Rapture, by Blondie. And hearing his name for the first time in that record while on a trip to Paris. There's so many elements to that. So let me get this right. Here's a guy from Brooklyn reaching a new demographic in rock fans who at the time probably didn't listen to hip hop while all happening while he was in another country. He didn't achieve that by staying in his comfort zone and sticking to what he knew. He found a common thread in another art scene, different from his own, and forged a bond with people he could stand to learn from. Let that be a lesson to you. Don't be afraid to talk to people you might not think you have anything in common with. Chances are you're more alike than you actually think. But most important by doing so, so you have the opportunity to widen your perspective and the perspective of others. The trick isn't to think outside of the box, but to realize there was never a box to begin with. Mm. I'm the Renaissance man. See you next week.